Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Oh, hey, it's Paul Wells, Senior Writer at McLean's. Hello. How are you? I'm good. Quiet week? Yeah, nothing much going on. We're going to talk today about angry, bias-confirming echo chambers. They're not just for the right anymore. And Paul... A legendary newspaper man has passed away. Dare I speak ill of the dead? I got a feeling you've got it in you. Welcome back to Shortcuts, Paul, where we talk shit about the news. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to everybody by Dylan Graham, Gabe Borden, Cole Pete, Eden Thibodeau, Dave Samojlenko, Jean-Paul Decos, Sarah Peel, and Eric. Hi, I'm Eric, and I'm a union activist in Gatineau, Quebec, and I support Canada Land because it makes me uh, go, what the hell, a lot, and more often than not, at the news as opposed to Jesse's opinion. You know, Paul, people ask me questions, listeners ask me questions. They say, Jesse, do you ever get tired of being wrong? And uh, I tell them, you know, not yet. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing pretty good on my New Year's resolution. I'm getting exercise every morning. I'm trying to sleep right. I got, I got it in me. I, I, I'm feeling pretty energetic. I'm not feeling tired yet. But check back in a bit after I give it a few more, uh, a few more goes. What am I talking about? Um, a lot of people were upset with me for last week's episode 
I know you're a busy guy, Paul. Perhaps you missed it, but I was talking with Sandy Garasino about the protests, and a lot of people who live in Ottawa got the feeling like I was being glib and dismissive of just how atrocious it's been for people who live there, especially in Centertown. Paul, you live in Ottawa. Yes. How's stuff been for you? Well, I'm in a cozy enclave a little bit out of Centertown, and so until the injunction kicked in and the truckers mostly obeyed the injunction not to honk their horns, the worst it got for us at home was you could hear the horns at night. But I grew up about 800 feet from the 402 in Sarnia, uh, and so I actually find truck noise soothing. Um, I've got a lot of friends who are in the middle of Centertown, and it was much more difficult for them. And I went downtown a few times, either to check out the center of the protest or on business, and the level of sort of ambient tension is very high. Noise, dirt, grime, mutual suspicion. It hasn't been a pleasant part of town. Yeah. And I guess what I want to say is like, I think what actually happened last week was I was really focused on what I considered my very apt analysis of what had already happened in the major protests. The first one when there were like, you know, whatever, eight, 10,000 people, the numbers seemed to be uh, controversial. But um, I felt that the media had, had kind of missed the, the real consequence. They'd missed the story that this actually had had a major political impact. You know, the ousting of Aaron O'Toole, I, I felt was connected. I was pretty fixated on that. Um, and the irony is I was missing the, where the story had gone. And Sandy was like, no, this is where the story is. It's on the the occupation. I don't mind offending people if I'm trying to offend them, Paul. But I I, huh. I feel for people who have been in Centertown, I would call the cops if that was me. I would be just as angry as they are. There's even news stories not about what's happened to people, but about how they feel. You know, they feel like they can't leave their, you know, like the tension or the feeling. So I'm not really apologizing for getting anything wrong in this instance. I'm more just apologizing for my personality, which I'm endlessly regretful about anyhow. Yes, I've heard great things about your personality, Jesse. I do want to kind of like get into where this has left me because, Paul, you've caught me at a moment of like existential crisis. Like, I am really trying to do my job, which is to like, look at the media and figure out what the hell's happening. Yeah. And I'm finding that th if you leave your network of people and what they're saying and your, your bubble and dip into the other one, it really is a separate reality. I'm going to illustrate this with another like actual, I think, mistake that I made <laughs> last week. And it's a mistake that I kind of inherited it and should have been more critical of. A lot of people were sharing this video taken from far away of a woman at the the big protest where she was saying to the crowd, you know, they think we're white supremacists. I don't see any white supremacists here. Who's a white supremacist? And the way that I saw that video and the way that I presented it to our listeners is a guy actually says, me, I'm a white supremacist mm -hmm. and surprises her. She thought there were no white supremacists. And that's the moment that she realizes that she actually is at a white supremacist rally. So that's how listeners of this show got that last week. I immediately got some feedback from people being like, Jesse, you messed up. That guy is a black guy. Mm. He's joking. He's like, as if I'm a white supremacist. And everybody had a laugh. Yeah. And I've spent like the greater part of the week trying to confirm that because you can't tell from the video that I actually used if that's the case. And I did find another video that strongly suggests that that's true. And I got it wrong. But I don't have total confirmation on that yet, so I can't issue the correction that I will absolutely issue if I got it wrong. But that just made me see things from the other point of view. Like, if I were at that rally and having a laugh with my fellow protesters, like, I know that I'm not a white nationalist, white supremacist, and here's a black guy who's come here too saying, like, oh, they think we're white supremacists, look at me, as if I'm a white supremacist. And then the way that that got reported on Canada Land and elsewhere is completely 
opposite of the truth, I think I would hate the media. You know? Yeah. It's just amazing to me how the same incident can fuel two completely different conceptions of what happened. Yeah, I mean, and this is why I've been in just a shitty mood for the last couple of weeks, is that I think this whole moment is an acceleration in our inability as a society to simply talk to one another. Absolutely driven by organizers of a convoy who had stupid ideas about the Constitution, about the way the Canadians are governed, and who, um, in a lot of cases just wanted to make some trouble and were planning uh, essentially an assault on the elected government of Canada long before the specific border trucker mandate was implemented. Um, but that's the hard core of a broader and diffuse movement that you don't get to ignore simply by pointing to the swastika flag in the crowd. I mean, I've got friends of the family far from Ottawa who are praying full-time for the success of this convoy and uh, house-sitting for participants. And, and these are, you know, substantially church ladies who are, who are doing this sort of stuff. Yeah. So uh, this is why I think there's a sort of growing frustration with Prime Minister Trudeau. It's increasingly close to being the only government in the country that's not rapidly uh, unwinding COVID restrictions and mandates because he's now stuck in a confrontation with, with, with this mob. In many ways, it is a mob. And it's keeping him from doing the thinking that his uh, colleagues, the premiers, and his counterparts, the leaders of national governments around the world, are doing. You know, it's just a, it's a putrefaction of our national discourse. And again, obviously influenced and to some degree financed by Trumpist Americans, ratcheted up to the nth degree by Twitter and Facebook. And we're getting further and further from the kind of spirit of cooperation and mutual support that, that characterized so much of people's behavior at the beginning of this pandemic. I mean, it, like it sounds almost po Pollyannish to even appeal to that, but we used to look out for each other. We used to try and get along and we used to have a lot of tolerance. And I mean, by used to, I mean, March, April, May of 2020, you know, and it seems that's just gone. But I'm starting to question, like, well, are they the mob or or am I in the mob? Like, all the good right-thinking people seem to be agreed. You know, the prime minister calls them disgusting. They're a fringe minority. Pundits like Emmett McFarlane see the problem is these people are fucking morons. The journalists who are supposed to be covering this and who are really upset about how they're getting harassed and yelled at, if you follow those journalists on Twitter, you will read a lot of very dismissive, sneering remarks about these protesters. And as you point out, like, yes, uh, a lot of it is on the basis of their political illiteracy. But what is the point there that, like, people who are not previously involved in the political system should just fuck off? We're doing the things we're supposed to do. We're supposed to dig into the extremist affiliations of the organizers. We should be looking at that. We should be seeing how much racism and extremism is, is there. But I feel like that granularity misses the bigger picture of, like, it's almost like we're in denial that there is widespread support. We can document that there is foreign funding. But it's almost like we're using that to, like, deny that this actually has a lot of Canadian support. And this is a majority blaming a small minority. And I know that that's going to offend people because we think of minority in the terms of ethnic minority or, or you know, this is a minority. Maybe it's a minority of the stupid, you know. Yeah. But that is still, like, just technically a small group of people who we are all ganging up on. Yeah. And... 
the tenor of the message is increasingly, like you say, like we're just not listening to people. I want to play you like there's this guy, Brittle Star, who is like, uh, you know this guy? I know him. <laughs> Can you describe him? I quietly left a dinner in Ottawa where he was the entertainment. <laughs> Look, he seems to be a nice guy who's, who's, who's managed to make a living sort of acting out on internet the um, preoccupations and concerns and the thoughts of the, of the, of the deeply online. And he's... Uh, kind of a center left, we're right, and they're morons guy. And he, and, he, and he has a kind of comedy routine about that. Look, I'm just going to get vaccinated. Fuck you, you know. And <laughs> speaking of someone who's triply vaccinated, and I'll do it again if I'm asked to, I find his humor wears out quickly. Uh, but I'm glad he's been able to find an audience, whatever, you know. He's found a big one. And, you know, if you see this guy, he looks, uh, you know, like – not dissimilar for me is like a, you know, like a puffy middle-aged dad kind of guy. I think he calls himself the internet's dad. And I think he's got like a marketing background and knows how to produce a video. And here's a clip that he produced that over a million people watched. I'm tired of stupid people. The pandemic has been like turning on an ultraviolet light in a hotel room that has made you distressingly aware of just how much stupid is around you at all times. It's on everything and it's everywhere. I'm tired of the people protesting lockdowns and masks like any government would want to enforce either, ever. Less tax revenue and millions of unhappy voters is not a great re-election platform. Lockdowns suck. Everyone already agrees. They're literally protesting a virus, or at best are protesting against measures put in place to protect them from a virus and keep them and their stupid loved ones healthy. This is like like Brittle Star in serious mode. He's not telling jokes anymore. This is serious. In a more funny mode, he had a tweet where he was mocking the idea that these freedom protesters are actually losing any freedom. And, and he, he tweeted, hey, I'm at a pub for lunch, uh, having a quick pint to try to console myself about my lost freedom. If that doesn't work, maybe I'll go shopping or go to a movie after. His point being like, what are you guys complaining about? If I can go and have lunch in a restaurant and a pint of beer and go to a movie and shop, obviously we have our freedom. And I'm like, schmuck, have you forgotten that people lost their businesses? And they lost their jobs and that not everybody can zoom into work. So like if you have to go to work, but your kid's on virtual school or like your partner's having a mental health breakdown, like that has no sympathy from us because my version of freedom is identical to yours. Yeah. If that's where we're at, I don't know where we're at. So my own feelings on this are complex and contradictory. Everyone in my family is vaxxed to the max. I was the social distancing enforcement cop in our house. People were not allowed in our house. We would freeze in the backyard during the periods when even that was allowed. I went to Calgary over the holidays and I was uh, kind of bitterly amused at the number of people who were parading, you know, like every fifth person in, in, a, in a grocery store would be uh, parading around making a great show of wearing their mask, but below their nose so that there was no point in them having a mask. And I thought, man, if that's how you trumpet your freedom, you go, I guess, you know? Yeah. And yet, this whole thing has required an effort of solidarity from just about everyone. And it makes sense that some people are going to get off the solidarity train before other people. And among the people that we've been asking the most of, those of us who work by webcam have been people who can't work by webcam, uh, people who actually have to be physically present to, to do their work. Um, people whose livelihood depends on finding customers and clients in an environment where there's fewer and fewer of those, you know? And I think 
part of what we're seeing in the contradiction of all this is, even though this mess on Parliament Hill is just about the worst marketing effort I can imagine for the notion that it's time to get rid of vaccine mandates and lockdowns, Mm -hmm. I know of two pollsters. Jean-Marc Léger is one of them, and then there's another who hasn't published his numbers yet, but he's finding the same trend, who show that support for relaxing mandates has been increasing in the last 10 days. Even though everything, you you turn on the news and, and what you hear is, it's a white supremacist mob who want to infect everyone. <laughs> Support for that viewpoint has been increasing, partly because people draw their conclusions independently and they're not looking to the convoy on the hill for advice one way or the other. And um, partly because I think this tactic of pointing to the extremists in the crowd, because there's going to be one, pointing to the people who are stupid, I think the nicest thing I can say is that it only goes so far, that it's a limited tactic. I think that's why, at least for some of us, this liberal MP, Joel Lightbound, when he came out and criticized the liberal government on its uh, stewardship of this file, why it resonated so much. Obviously, there's the ancient political journalistic blood sport of loving it when someone turns on their own side. Mm -hmm. But also what, what he was saying is that you may be able to win by saying I'm right and you're wrong all the time, by saying I'm tired of stupid people. But it's a sterile victory, and it's a lousy predicate for uh, what needs to come afterwards, which is that we've all got to live together. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. Paul, 
You're an old hand at this uh, Shortcuts co-hosting gig, so you know that we duly note stories that people uh, might otherwise have over- overlooked. What do you have to share today? Jesse, my thing that I noticed is a column from Richard Martineau, who is, I would almost never think to cite him as a positive influence. He's a tough-nosed, hard-scrabble columnist for the Journal de Montréal, and he usually says, like, why is everyone mean to Francophone Quebecers? Like, and that's about as far as he normally goes. But he pointed out this guy, Joel Lightbound, the liberal MP who um, shat all over his own Trudeau government, that that's actually a useful escape valve because finally you've got young, well-educated, progressive, uh, dynamic figure who is saying that a lot of the concerns that people are feeling are legitimate and real and need to be heard. And then so suddenly that discourse isn't uh, relegated to a bunch of shady so-called truckers with QAnon funding, <laughs> that if you don't acknowledge these concerns as part of le- the legitimate worry and stress that we feel as a society, then the only people left to own it are fringe irregulars. And I thought that was an interesting way to think about it. And it's the first time in a long time I've thought, okay, this guy Richard Martineau might have a point. Do you think that that guy's just like going to change teams? I don't. I believe he's liberal if he's anything. Yeah. And I don't think he's got a strategy. I think he's... uh, Actually speaking his mind and heart. Weird. Like, I spent the last three years just railing against the Trudeau government all the time. You would not believe how popular that is among liberals. Mm -hmm. You -hmm. would not believe how frequently a liberal leaves their government job, adds me on LinkedIn, runs into me on the street and says, keep going, Paul. Yeah. There is a hell of a lot of internal frustration with the command and control bullshit of this government. Duly noted. I want to duly note the expression on Faith Goldie's face (laughs) when she's finally dragged into a compliance audit for irregularities in her 2018 run for Toronto mayor, uh, her failed bid for mayor. Finally, they have her on a Zoom audit to account for, like, where did the money come from and why did you break the laws? And I want to duly note the way her face looks as they read the land acknowledgement. (laughs) (laughs) And that's it. Just that moment, which our own Jonathan Goldsby screen capped and tweeted. And it's just, it's just perfect. It's just a perfect thing. And it's from an earlier, more innocent time when I could really dislike somebody in an uncomplicated way. (laughs) Duly noted. Paul, I don't know if I'm going to speak ill of the dead. I, I'm going to try to speak uh, factually about the dead. Okay. John Hondrick. John Hondrick died last week at the age of 75 of a heart attack. Uh, you worked for John briefly. Yeah, I call it my summer job at the Toronto Star. I quit McLean's in 2016. The, uh, uh, John and uh, Michael Cook were uh, gracious enough to offer me a column at the Star. And after... Ten months, I left the star and went back to McLean's. There's a story there, but let's let's uh, get to it some other time. Uh, John Hondrick, of course, was a lifelong newspaper person in Canada. He was born into the newspaper business. His father was the publisher of the Toronto Star, but 
He worked his way up from the bottom. He was a copy boy. He was a cub reporter. He started the Ottawa Citizen. Uh, eventually, yes, uh, he did go to the Star, moved his way up there uh, to become an editor. Later, like his dad, publisher of the Toronto Star. And then finally, he was the chair of the board of Torstar, the Torstar company that owns the Toronto Star from 2009 until 2020. Order of Ontario, Order of Canada. This is like a top-level Canadian establishment figure. And based on the flurry of obituaries and memorials from colleagues, from rivals, just a very well-loved and admired and respected man, many, many pieces have been published. And this is one of those moments where all of at least legacy media in Canada, you know, take a moment to respect and remember one of their own. I'll share some of the descriptions. Um, various Toronto Star writers described him as a smiling giant, a titan of journalism, an unwavering champion of the truth, a defender of journalism. The prime minister called him a giant of journalism. This theme of, of being a defender and a champion, a fighter for journalism and journalists comes up again and again. His rival, Philip Crawley, he said that uh, Hondrick fought the good fight for our industry with passion and purpose. Lovely memories. We should all strive to be remembered so well. And please, mourners, I mean you no disrespect. No disrespect to John Hendrick's memory. I am sorry for your loss. But Paul Wells, a bunch of stuff kind of got left out. What do you got? I mean, you know what I got. Everybody knows what I'm about to say. Everybody in the industry knows what I'm about to say. Here is a National Post business story from 2016. Torstar's shareholder value has dropped from a peak of $30.60 a share, or $1.9 billion, to $2 today, about $175 million. Uh, by the way, uh, after this piece was written, it went down to like 50 cents. In other words, Torstar has erased $1.7 billion in shareholder value since 2004, making Torstar and not PostMedia guilty of the largest destruction of value in the 264-year <laughs> history of Canadian newspapers. The Torstar value decline is three times greater than that of post media. So yes, it's true that the newspaper business was rolling rapidly down a hill, but Torstar fell off a cliff. Yeah. And it was a publicly traded company. Yeah. And like a strangely high number of Canadian companies, it had a weird structure as a publicly traded company. They decided that the Toronto Star couldn't just be some vulgar commodity, right, where all the shareholders decide what goes. No, the voting shares, the voting shares were controlled by a small group of shareholders who only actually had like a small percentage of the overall shares, but they had all of the power. And those shares were split between five families. And the reason for that, as I understand it, is that it was determined that something as important to society as the Toronto Star, because it was the press, because it was the progressive press, it was a people's newspaper, it has the Atkinson principles, you need to have people, families, who understand those principles making decisions. It was the job of those families, the Hondrick family included, and it was the job of John Hondrick as chair of the board to protect the newspaper. The Toronto Star was sold to guys with vague conservative party affiliations a couple of years ago for $60 million. And as the final kicker, Paul, like this, this is actually not really being discussed nearly as much as it should have been. It turned out that Torstar sold for 60 million, 
owned something that was worth three times that. The new owners spun off one of the holdings of Torstar, a company called Vertical Scope, and they went public with Vertical Scope, and Torstar's stake in Vertical Scope very quickly was worth $180 million. Paul, I would love to buy something for $60 million that contained a little drawer that had $180 million in it. So if we're going to talk about John Hondrick as a protector of journalism, that's fine insofar as he was a journalist, but a lot of journalists lost their jobs because of the Toronto Star's financial woes. And I guess the point I want to make is that I cannot fathom or conceive of any other titan of industry in Canada who is responsible for a company of that scale being remembered in an obituary and having that chapter of their career erased. Just like like there's a vague reference to how some of his things didn't work out in the Toronto Star's official obit, uh, but the Canadian press doesn't like mention it, Globe and Mail doesn't mention it. And I don't think that you are honoring the memory of a newspaper person by publishing a softball piece of content that, that glosses over and omits facts. So I think maybe a lot of that context would have been more appropriate when he sold off the star or a couple months from now. We're not great in Canada at doing uh, savage or even nuanced obits, right? We break out the violins for, for at least a certain period. I remember even the National Post when Pierre Trudeau died, uh, Ken White said, like, no ill may be said of this guy. I think that held for days. And then, and then Stephen Harper was the one who stuck the knife in. But um, all I'll say about the star is that John Hondrick was personally absolutely a prince to me. Came to Ottawa personally to offer me the gig. Was surprised and astonished uh, when I left, but I think swallowed his pride and wished me well. And was nice in between. And what I saw at the Star five years ago now was a paper that was in utter denial about the digital future in which it then found itself. A paper that still thought about tomorrow's edition hitting the streets as as though that was any kind of planning basis. A paper that was deeply, deeply invested in that stupid iPad app. Star, uh, Star Touch. Touch. Ranks and ranks of people they had brought in to put this thing out and that they then laid off not long after because it was never going to work. I decided I sure couldn't change the culture of that place, and I, so all I, all I could do was absent myself, and so I did. But any of us who's, who's read The Star can name uh, a half dozen, many more, like talents that the poor likes of me could never match. You start with Kevin Donovan heading the, the investigative team. So many of their sports writers, their Dynamite Ottawa Bureau, and on, like on and on and on. And so I, like I... I just kind of skulked out rather than saying any of this stuff. But I was just amazed at how obsessed they were with tomorrow's paper, as though anyone in the world thinks about tomorrow's paper rather than what's going on right now, you know? <laughs> Paul, I have vivid memories of being in then editor-in-chief uh, Michael Cook's office as the Gameshi story was playing out minute by minute over Twitter and Facebook and him jabbing his finger at the screen where people were tweeting and, and people involved were tweeting and the story was progressing in front of his eyes. And he said, this doesn't matter. The paper is what matters. And I was looking and being like, they don't have a chance in hell if that's what they think over here. I think there is a wider issue here, which is a real Canadian situation where like this guy, because he was a glorious figure, beloved figure, establishment figure, became untouchable 
and out of touch. And there doesn't seem like there was any mechanism, no matter how poorly the fortunes of the paper, you know, collapsed, to like touch base with that reality. Yeah. And make it make make a change that was obviously needed for a lot of people's benefit. Now, uh, the new owners have made some dynamite hires. Sarmish de Subramanian, one of the great feature editors, former editor of the Literary Review of Canada, who's heading up their weekend feature operation. Uh, Steph Levitz, new at the Ottawa Bureau, who's just going to go like thunder. People will be hearing about Stephanie Levitz. Richard Warnica, uh, a wonderful political feature writer. So, like, the great thing about a daily newspaper is tomorrow's a new day, even if you don't have anything on the website right now. I remain a subscriber and a fan, but... Uh, it was like being encased in amber <laughs> the time that I'd spent there. <laughs> All right. That is Shortcuts for this week. Paul Wells, thanks for joining me. Thank you. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. I can be emailed uh, at jesse at CanadaLand.com, and I do read what you send. Paul Wells, you're not on Twitter, but where can people find you? Uh, I've got a journalist page on Facebook and uh, always on mcleans.ca. Our website is canadaland.com where you can hear this week's episode of The Backbench. Paul, I learned like five things I didn't know before from this week's episode of The Backbench and I had a really good time as I learned. So if you're not listening to The Backbench, go listen to The Backbench. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Theme music is by so-called syndication by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do and you want to receive ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, please support us. We need your help. Um, that's how we make this happen. Hit the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. Go do it now. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to and so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get. For just $2 a month, that is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.